0: When you have, um, you know, so many African American athletes that dominate these sports, hip hop is coming with it. And not that hip hop is only, you know, uh, patronized by by black folks, but we, you know we're the ones that created mm-hmm. the culture, and we're the ones that further it through sports. <laughs>
1: How you doing party people? This is Talib Kweli. This is another edition of The People's Party. How y'all feeling today? I am in the house once again with the always awesome Jasmine Lee. Let's give it up for Jasmine Lee hey in the guys. house. No doubt, no doubt. Um, today should be very interesting. Another one of my favorite people is gonna come and talk to us about hip hop, about music in general, about culture in general, about politics, about sports. This guest is very important. Tonight, Today, I don't know when you're watching this, but right now we got, <laughs> I don't know when they're watching it. Right now we got the talented, the lovely, award winning journalist, activist, you know her as a sports writer, but she is more than that. She is a voice for the voiceless. She is hope for the hopeless. We got Jamel Hill today. Yeah. Jamel Hill. Motherfucking hell. How are you? How you doing?
2: I'm
0: my brain sister. Bray gang. Yes, I'm trying
1: to represent. Bray gang, Bray gang, Bray gang. BG baby. How you doing, Jamel?
0: I'm good, I'm good. Just a pleasure to be here, sitting across from you. Okay. A fellow thinker like myself. Okay,
1: you and me met in Orlando because you came to my show at a nightclub. Uh, it was me and Jean Grey performing. I will say that,
0: generally speaking, um, I have what I call wax celebrity in the sense that it never works for anything that I really want to do. Uh-huh. But in that case, I will not lie. I use my ESPN this to get backstage. ESPN this. So, so I could. Meet you because um, you're definitely one of my favorite rappers of all time, um, hence the shirts, right? Uh, yeah, I like that shirt. I was <laughs> yeah, going to speak on that. It's yeah. a wonderful shirt. Um, I won't lie. It's probably bootleg. So it you is bootleg. Yes, so I can pay bootlegged. for it, right? Yeah. Like, I have a respiration t-shirt, too, so uh, you probably didn't even know they made that. All
1: these ideas.
0: Yeah, yeah, so I, I, I tend to, to scour and, and look far and wide for t-shirts that represent things that um, are near and dear to me or things mm-hmm. I just fuck with in general.
1: So mm-hmm. No, um, you know, baseball was my first passion before music, and you and me have spoken a little, a little yeah. bit about that. I um, played baseball, played Little League. My father was a Little League coach. I was playing varsity baseball in high school, but Tribe Called Quest was really, I could hear the beats <laughs> thumping, you know what I'm saying? And it was like, what I did notice though, is that when I played baseball as a little kid, there was a little bit more black people in baseball. A lot more probably. <laughs> yeah, you know. I remember having, you know, black heroes in the Yankees like Dave Winfield and, and Ricky Henderson and people like that. What do you think is the reason why there's such a lack of black baseball players?
0: It's a lot of reasons. Um, I think certainly we need to acknowledge the fact that football and basketball are just cheaper. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, and to some degree, I, I think it's about perception as well that you have kids who look at base uh, who look at football and basketball as instant star makers, especially basketball, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's so tied to the culture and it, stylistically, it's always you know, had this connection with music, with hip hop, with other different forms. So I think there's a coolness to basketball that kids love. All that being said, I'm not as um, easy or um, I'm not, I'm not reluctant or I am reluctant to let major league baseball off the hook Mm -hmm. because part of this is also about investment and you know, kids in the inner cities, one thing you see disappearing rapidly is physical education, Mm -hmm. parks, those kind of things. And that's where typically, I don't know how it was when you was growing up, that's Mm -hmm. where like, Baseball was my first love too. Right. Right. I played fast pitch softball. Um, I used to watch Major League Baseball every Saturday. Um, shout out to Mel Allen for This Week in Baseball. I used to watch that yeah. every week. And, um, but it started disappearing from my neighborhood because the, you know, in, in poor neighborhoods, the ball fields won't be kept up. It'll just, the traces of it just kind of won't exist. And mm-hmm. um, so I think Major League Baseball needs to do a better job. Of coming into inner cities, uh, building baseball academies. They've built a ton of baseball academies, obviously in the Dominican and Cuba and other places. They need to have that same and similar commitment in the inner cities. I know they have the RBI program. Yeah, that's which a is great Copton, program. Which is a great program, yeah. but they need to expand it and honestly make it more economically viable for. Um, kids in urban cities to play because baseball is expensive yeah. I mean it after the equipment alone now is strictly becoming an elitist sport because Only those kids who can afford to travel who can afford to you know go to certain places will be able to play And you do not want a sport that isn't that economically diverse
1: right up word right up I love the fundamentals of baseball, but it's absolutely a suburban thing. Yeah, you know, I, I was blessed to grow up near a park um, most people did not grow up near a park. If we played baseball on the street, it was wiffle ball. Um, we played touch football on the street, tackle football on the street, basketball on the street. I never really got into basketball. And I'm not, again, I'm not a sports guy. I don't know too much about sports. I was not coordinated with basketball at all. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? But, but my favorite, one of my favorite rappers, Biggie, said either you sling and crack rock or you got a wicked jump shot. That line connects hip hop and sports in so many ways. And you're a, really a hip hop, sports journalists. Yeah, I mean, I
0: always, when I was at ESPN, me and also my uh, former co-host, Michael Smith, mm-hmm. we always looked for ways to connect the two because it was just, to me, so vibrant. Um, the connection, the tissue was always there. Mm-hmm. As they often say, most rappers wanna be athletes, most athletes wanna be rappers. Right. Um, And neither one are usually as good as they think they are when they try to decide to make that switch. But, but, uh, you know, nevertheless, um, I think that part of the reason why uh, certain sports are as big as they are in America today is because of that hip hop link. It's Mm -hmm. it's funny to me now when I look at the NBA, because there was this period where they acted, the league acted as if it was ashamed of the hip hop connection, you know. I'm old enough to remember when there was a dress code in the NBA. Right. And a big reason it was because of throwback. Right. The uniform. long ass suits. Long ass. Yeah, right. The Steve Harvey specials, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? <laughs> um, And also, you know, Allen Iverson with the, with the straight backs and coming yeah. to games and jerseys and gold right. chains and... You know, him. We're talking about practice. Right? right. Him very much and vibrantly representing <laughs> hip-hop culture. And that was considered a, a threat to the NBA right. not then. Now you turn to ESPN and, and they got J. Cole's Motivate <laughs> as, right. as the backdrop to the you know playoff music. Or they got Anderson Pack, or all these other hip-hop artists um, that they are soliciting to sell their product.
1: Yeah, so I it's think just... I got a check for March Madness once for a song. <laughs> see what I'm saying? Yeah.
0: Like, and so it, it's just interesting to see how that relationship... Has grown, but when you have, um, you know, so many African American athletes that dominate these sports, hip hop is coming with it. And not that hip hop is only, you know, uh, patronized by, by black folks, but we, you know, we're the ones that created mm-hmm. the culture, and we're the ones that further it through sports.
1: Who's the best athlete on the mic? Uh,
0: the best athlete on the mic. Okay, well. So I'm just going to make this more of a, a Sha- lifetime question,
1: all right? But right? I I'm, on, I'm on a Shaq album no, that never came say, out.
0: I, I, I think it's Shaq, though. Is like, Shaq the best? Yeah, I mean, okay. the best that I, I've heard. Now, granted...
1: We don't know, need no hooks.
0: <laughs> uh, a lot of people, and I have to say, I have not listened to his music um, intently enough to know, but... Uh, Damian Lillard is another dude. They say got legitimate skills.
1: I that would be the name that I would bring up Okay, I, again, I don't know too much about the basketball players, but I heard Damian Lillard rap I did an event with him. And he don't and he's
0: legit. Yeah, so Shaq far as I know is the only um, Athlete that ever went like gold
1: right so he right. actually sold he know, went platinum twice. Yeah, maybe. I
0: was gonna say I was gonna say yeah. might been, I might be underbossing him right yeah. now, but he's the only one that I know of. But most of them generally just you know aren't that good. I mean, again, old enough to remember when Alan Iverson came out with right. the, right. the rap album. He was
1: rapping. Kobe was, was rapping. Elon, Kobe.
0: Iman was- Shrumpert.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yes, he's Eman rapping now too. Yeah, Mary says Tiana Taylor. Yeah, it's, I liked this it's song. True. You it's, like this song? Yeah, I, I can't remember the name of it. it, but it was really it, I liked it.
0: Well, most <laughs> most of them, especially like when you go back and look at the Kobe clip. It's like truly hysterical because you're like, (laughs) "Dude, really tried to rap?" Yeah, Kobe was
1: being sold. Like they was, he had records. Like I don't know who produced those records, but they were very like produced.
0: Yeah, they were. And I think that he, that was when he was in a phase where, um, you know, I I think there was some identity kind of issues he was Mm -hmm. having. He didn't quite fit what was the basketball narrative. It's Mm -hmm. not his fault. It's a narrative that was pushed on him. You know, being someone who was very worldly who um, you know, knew Italian, right. all this other stuff, because he wasn't, quote, a street kid. Mm-hmm. It was sort of like people acted like he was some kind of herb, you know right, what I mean? Right. And so I think, I wonder if he felt pressure to get that involved in hip hop just mm. to kind of, um, you know, just to kind of uh, try to kill some perceptions about who he was. Mm.
1: So you've had, um, on your show, on your podcast, you've had uh, Killer Mike, and uh, you are, are, you're doing a show with LeBron as well.
0: Yeah, I narrated a documentary that LeBron, um, uh, that came out on uh, Showtime called Shut Up and Dribble, Mm -hmm. which is basically, uh, uh, for those who don't know the backstory, uh, Laura Ingram um, from Fox News, when LeBron uh, expressed some criticisms of the president, criticisms that weren't wrong, and Mm -hmm. even if she disagreed with him, LeBron probably pay more taxes than she does, right? Absolutely. So that's just w- what it is. Right, he worth but, half
1: a billion. They still praise
0: a nigga on his house. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And so she said on air in her commentary, "Why can't he just shut up and dribble?" Mm-hmm. And meanwhile, this is the same network bullshit. You not this. This is one of the funniest moments I've ever seen in television history. Is um, I was channel surfing. And Ja Rule was on Fox News, and they listed. <laughs> I, su- I swear, you could we go to to find ja it. I was like, yes, but LeBron has to shut up. They've had Fabio <laughs> on as a political commentator, really? but LeBron got to shut up and dribble. So I say all that to say he said that the documentary was already in the works, mm-hmm. and I, had, I was a commentator at that point. Mm-hmm. And once she said, Shut up and dribble, um, she put more money in everybody's pocket because right. that became the title of the documentary. It took on a, a bit of a, a um, you know, kind of a different direction because it showed how in the the history of basketball from Bill Russell all the way through LeBron that black athletes, uh, in this case, focused on basketball, have always been told that mm-hmm. to to shut up, entertain us you know don't don't remind us of your blackness you know yeah. be be a black face not a black voice like we've always that's always been the history mm-hmm. of black athletes and and just just be grateful just be mm-hmm. grateful we let you in the door and that we allow you to make this money and so i i was really on board and believed in the content and i thought it was great that this is something lebron wanted to do so when he asked me to narrate um i was ecstatic because one you don't have that many women who get to narrate sports documentaries, mm-hmm. number 1A, and uh, you don't see many black women who get to narrate sports documentaries. So I was very right. proud to work on that with them. And
1: we are very proud of you.
0: Well, thank you. Yeah. Absolutely. And it got uh, nominated for a sports Emmy and nominated for an NAACP Image Award. So um, I'm just thankful that LeBron and, and Maverick Carter and the whole Spring Hill Entertainment team you know, had the faith in me to – Um, you know, to help deliver what was, I think, very necessary content, um, especially in light of today as we talk about Colin Kaepernick and, and some of the uh, other athletes who have sacrificed right. uh, via their voice.
2: And it's crazy because they do the same thing to hip-hop artists. Absolutely. You remember when uh, Cardi B was freaking out on Donald Trump? They're like, oh, you don't know anything. You're just a rapper. And they feel like just because you're an entertainer, you don't also have a brain. Like,
0: you're not also living in this world and dealing with the circumstances. Yeah, What I often think about, though, um, is they say that as if... The, as if they allow other classes of people to contribute to the conversation. If you're poor, shut up. You don't know anything. You're too poor. Mm-hmm. If you're middle, like it really doesn't matter. The whole point, I think, and especially you know from a racial standpoint, is that they, a lot of people in this country, especially when it comes to critically thinking about politics or race or gender, they would prefer that black people just not say anything. Right. And so, um, unfortunately, athletes, entertainers, hip hop artists get it the worst because they feel as if because of the money that they've made, that that means everything's cool and that they should not have this connection still mm-hmm. with their people and the people right. from their communities that look like them.
1: Right. Um, I have a website, kwaliclub.com, and on that website, I have uh, Incuru Books, which is a bookstore that myself and Yasin Bey purchase, And we don't have overhead, but the bookstore lives on my website. On this site, I sell a book called $40 Million Slaves. Oh, wonderful book. Yes, great book. And the book does a great job of showing the parallels between the uh, sports, uh, NBA, NFL, uh, Major League Baseball, and the systems of shadow slavery. And, you know, the most visceral image of pop culture we have that could compare to that is maybe the Calvin Candy scenes in (laughs) in Django Unchained, Mm -hmm. um, about how they had the big black bucks and how they were treating them and you know, but what happens is, is that people are working class and poor, and watching athletes on TV, and people have a hard time wrapping their heads around the idea that someone could make forty million dollars and still be a slave. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, LeBron is someone, you know, with the shut up and dribble thing, with the um, fact that people, when he said, "I'm taking my talents to Miami," um, people got very upset. Like the ownership of Black spaces and black bodies—they felt like you belong, nigger. You belong to us. How dare you? And and you know, like recently, more recently, um, Antonio Brown, who's not a player that I'm familiar with, until I saw him on TV saying, "I don't have to do anything y'all say. Right. I don't have to play football. You have to do it on my terms." That was revolutionary to me. And see, my perspective, when I see an artist like or an athlete like LeBron or Antonio Brown, when I see that, I'm like. That makes a lot of sense to me. But it seems like in the sort of saccharine sports world, um, the ESPNs of the world, you know, the Disney-owned pieces of the world, that those things seem so other and so outside. Do you feel like they're $40 million slaves?
0: Well, what I do feel is this, is um, because of the age that we're in Mm -hmm. and because of, I think, the athletes who are leading this generation, it's a lot better than maybe my first 10 years as a sports writer as a sports writer and Mm -hmm. sports journalist like i'm i'm 21 years in and the athlete of the moment when i first got into this business as a professional was michael jordan Mm -hmm. now michael jordan his his brand of activism if we want to call it that was a lot different uh he believed in being a political however and i have come to appreciate him more i think in hindsight than when he played, because I also was disappointed at a lot of the things that he said, his reluctance um, to get involved in issues that were impacting the black community. Mm -hmm. But what he did do was show billion dollar companies like Nike that a black man could be the face of this company and make it more money and give it more prestige and more uh, cultural cachet than it's ever had. Mm -hmm. He taught black athletes how to brand on a global level. Mm -hmm. And that was important because that financial freedom Ultimately is what has led to this generation and this right. generation is two athletes that I think Have become the leaders of this generation and that is Colin Kaepernick and LeBron James mm-hmm. And one thing that LeBron has given other athletes the blueprint on is owning your talent mm-hmm. Okay, LeBron owns everything that he does. You know his production company. He, he owns uh, Uninterrupted which is his media company Um, he is only involved if he gets a piece. And now I see the rest of these athletes are smartening up with that. Colin Kaepernick has a production company. Steph Curry has a production company. Kevin Durant has a production company. And what they're saying with this is we're not going to sit back and wait for a mostly white media Mm -hmm. to – build the narratives of who we are to tell our stories. We're going to do it ourselves and we're going to make money for ourselves and make money for our families and make money for whoever we put in our circle. So I do think there's a level of independence and ownership that's happening now that we haven't seen before. And even with Colin, um, while I know the, the, the protests have petered out, but I see athletes who are much more vocal now than they were 10 years ago because they have been inspired by his leadership and to some degree they felt uh they now feel ashamed if they aren't speaking up. So mm-hmm. I do think it's, it's different. Now, mm-hmm. I'm not gonna lie to you, there's plenty of athletes who are content to to just collect a check. Yeah. They speak out too. So they're to speak out was not meant to be a boss. No, mm-hmm. and there's some people, you know, you I always I think that you have to be careful who you include in the conversation mm-hmm. because there's some people everybody's gift doesn't have to be the same, like maybe yours is through works mm-hmm. you are you have the um extraordinary ability where you can speak and do action at the same time. It's some people who just need to do action mm-hmm. and you know when um yeah when Kanye was having his thought bubbles, if you will, <laughs> when he was um, free thinking when he was free thinking <laughs> my thing is that. I'm okay if you come to the conversation, but you got to come to this conversation armed with some kind of information. You Absolutely. can't be sitting up there trying to have these conversations about politics and race and gender and all these intra-community issues and bragging about how you don't read. Like, nah, right? Mm-hmm. right. And even that's you off
1: know, code, non-cipher. No, all
0: that. You, I want to ha-
2: cheers you to that. <laughs> that you, don't have any, you know, how you want wine. Do you
0: want some more? You uh, sure? Yeah. You you uh, it's you're under. Get her the good
1: stuff. <laughs> <laughs> this
0: is pretty good. You're undermining what we're talking about. Like Mm -hmm. Cam Newton, I felt like was doing that. Yeah. Because, you know, as they started calling him All Lives Matter Cam, you know, Mm -hmm. and I think he felt a lot of pressure being in North Carolina. um, Yeah. And when Jerry Richardson was the owner, he felt a lot of pressure to be a little more apolitical and less threatening. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, with some of the comments that he's made, I feel like I felt like he undermined the, the conversation but I also mm. think the media is lazy and anytime they see a black dude that's a quarterback they're asking him about all kind of racial issues mm-hmm. and it's like he it's okay if he just wants the quarterback right everybody's mm-hmm. just not meant or built. built for this
1: right everybody's not built for it Mm-mm. some people are triggered by it some people are stressed not everybody Kaepernick has the type of background you know and, and political education that led him to that um you know can you speak on this military connection with the NFL? Because I think a lot of people, they successfully in the mainstream media uh, made the conversation about patriotism when he was protesting police violence and police brutality.
0: So I don't like to give Donald Trump literally credit for anything. Mm-hmm. I barely want to give him credit for breathing. Okay, <laughs> I feel okay. that. <laughs> um, but, breathing. Uh, the, but I will say it was, uh, I don't know if it was his idea, but it was a brilliant strategic move is that he hijacked the conversation and right. made it about patriotism and so he associated with the troops which as of course in this country you know we all have um a, a, a high level respect for troops we all have a um you know a, a, a sentimentality about what they've given and sacrificed to, to to give to this country there there's no debating that mm-hmm. right um but what people don't understand that the nfl was running an elaborate con And before say, I think 2005 or 2006, if you go back and look at the tape, NFL players were all in the locker room during the national anthem. And it wasn't until the Department of Defense cut a check to the NFL, where they brought the players out on the field um, and you see these military flyovers and they make a production of it And mm-hmm. even when you see these military families who are reunited on the field, you've seen them at halftime We've mm-hmm. seen them and it gives everybody a good feeling and a good sense of pride. They did it to recruit mm-hmm. Okay, and right. so they use the NFL to do that. And so it was always while I wouldn't say it was completely disingenuous It was an asterisk to it because right. it was about a check because they wouldn't be doing it unless they were getting paid right so people
1: and that started what year
0: Um, I believe it started at around 2006 or 2007
1: because even you know I didn't realize they've done such a good job of selling it I didn't realize it wasn't always going on right until I researched it so there's a lot of people who are in the conversation who think it's always been like that.
0: Yeah, and much like a lot of people didn't understand after 9-11 how our police forces across the country became more militarized mm-hmm. as a result of 9-11. Mm-hmm. And even the national anthem in sports took on much more meaning after 9-11 it did for a lot of people, understandably so. Mm-hmm. Um, and so because of that, uh, people had this visceral reaction when Colin Kaepernick started kneeling. Uh, they forgot about the check that the NFL was getting. They also forgot about the fact that it was an army ranger that told him to kneel mm-hmm. and not to sit. Because originally he was sitting. He met with this army ranger,
1: Nate Boyer, who's mm-hmm. an unbelievable person. I've been And a- who's, Nate is not aligned with Kaepernick on his politics
0: No, not. As far as I know. No, well, he, he, um no, he definitely understands his social justice fight.
1: Yeah, I don't think he's, I saw an interview with him recently mm-hmm. where he was like, he spoke about being angry when he saw, Kaepernick kneeling. Yeah, at he did it first. Yeah, and at then first. once they talked, mm-hmm. he came around and understood right. the reason
0: why he was doing it, that it really was unrelated to patriotism mm-hmm. troops. And Kaepernick even said early on that one of the reasons he was doing it, because he felt like a lot of soldiers were dying for ideals that this country wasn't living up to. He made right. that clear from the beginning. Right. And so Nate was the one that told him to kneel because kneeling is something you do out of respect to fallen soldiers. And that's mm-hmm. why he did it. Right. And unfortunately, over the course of you know a few years now, that, that conversation has been hijacked and it's right. become about patriotism and all these other things. Everything but unarmed black people being killed in the criminal justice system. Right. Everything but that.
1: Now, you have to know a lot about that because you grew up in Detroit, and Detroit is what, 80% black?
0: Uh, yeah, it might be slightly less now because okay. much like a, a lot of the the country and where you're from too, We it's a serious case of gentrification happening in Detroit. In Detroit, yeah, yeah. Oh,
1: yeah I know. Shout out to Jessica Caremore. Um, how did growing up in Detroit, and what's interesting to me is that you've dealt with people trying to censor your voice, but you started at the Free Press. Um, how is growing up in Detroit influence your journalism and your writing?
0: It has everything to do with who I am. Um, You know, I grew up uh, in a city that people wanted to forget. Um, You know, uh, it was like a lot of urban cities under siege because of the, you know, the proliferation of crack and and what that did in the 80s when I grew up and what it did to the neighborhoods and the black family structure and just everything we've come to know. And so uh, it was always a tough city because... You know, we're not cool like New York, all
1: right? God, we're not cool. Some, yeah. Sometimes y'all a little cooler. Uh, well,
0: we like to in think so, ways. but perception-wise, yeah, yeah, I understand. People, people aren't talking about vacation into Detroit. Not or at like, all, like no, oh, no. I gotta go to Detroit to mm-hmm. check this out. You right? know
2: what? I know somebody from Detroit, and he was trying to tell me like we have beaches, we have this. We I'm do. Like, yeah. Who's going on a trip to Detroit? <laughs> Look, it's a <laughs> lot of
0: things we have in the D y'all don't know about, all right? <laughs> like the D. We,
1: they out there doing the Arrow Flynn. A bunch of <laughs> Errol Flynn, see, he knows. Um, I know that about hip-hop, see, like, Detroit, what you just described Detroit like, that to me is like the Detroit hip-hop scene. Mm. Um, you know, these guys from Royce to, you know, Fat Cat, you know, Slum Village, Eminem and them. Yeah. like, the Detroit hip-hop scene to me was very volatile. Those guys used to fight all the time. Oh, totally. Fight each other, shoot at each other, all that. <laughs> we
2: just saw the fight the other day with Trick Trick.
1: Oh yeah, we was watching old <laughs> Trick Trick videos. You know who Trick Trick is? I do know who Trick Trick <laughs> is. Trick
0: Trick. No, but it but it is true, it's like the hip hop scene was um it was something out of the Wild Wild West to some mm-hmm. degree, but you know, of course, the, with the success of, of Eminem. And a lot of
1: them older now. I got to shout out all the guys that just, because they've all, they're, yeah. now they're all friends. Yes, Now correct. they all hang yeah, out. Yeah, it's not like that yeah, anymore. Yeah,
0: yeah. It's a much more cohesive yes. scene than what you've seen. And, of course, the success of Big Sean, and it brought mm-hmm. a lot of attention uh, to Detroit. But it was a city that was often, you know, people took a shit on all the time. You know, you, The only time I used to see Detroit on the national news was when something bad happened. And, of course, once a year when they released, um, the murder rate and ranked them by city. Mm-hmm. We were always in the top three. They always had to talk about how, you know, Detroit was basically the armpit of the country. Mm-hmm. And so what happens is that people from Detroit, we not only, you know, stick tight together and stick up for each other, but you get a chip on your shoulder. Yeah. And um, it also kind of gives you this sense of, of toughness. And, uh, you know, I know that the shirts have. Been populated everybody else, but truly Detroit versus everybody. Yeah, and so um, as a as a journalist, years later, I think that's what made me fearless—not just about my opinion, but about my reporting. Like mm-hmm. there were questions, I'm supposed to be afraid to ask a coach why he lost or why he didn't run a particular play when, you know, people—I've seen people in my neighborhood or know people in my neighborhood who've been shot and killed. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, I, I'm the child of recovering drug addicts. Like mm-hmm. me, Donald Trump telling people I need to be fired, who gives a fuck? Like, Mm -hmm. at the end of the day, Mm -hmm. like, I don't because Mm -hmm. I'm just like, dude, I mean, I've had, you know, family members and people close to me recover from things far worse than any of what you're talking about right now. Mm -hmm. So this is nothing to me. So um, I am always grateful and thankful for Detroit for giving me that sense of perspective to know that Mm -hmm. a lot of the things, the criticism I've dealt with, you know, racial, gender, or otherwise, is... To a large degree, first world problems based off how I grew up.
1: See, what you just said is what I really love about you, and why you have become a voice for the voiceless. I am someone who I'm proud to not have a boss. You've had bosses, but you don't give a fuck. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So you just like me. It's like it don't I had even... like two fucks yeah. at one point. <laughs> you know, you, you have respect for them, but you not apologetic. You you unapologetically black. And you're saying what you got to say. When you said Donald Trump is a white supremacist, in my world, that's a fact. Mm -hmm. But it was treated like you're not supposed to say that. I have a friend named Rakia Mays who, um, she's a journalist, she's been doing it for a long time. Jared, you know, you remember Rakia from back in the day. Um, But she said to me the other day that she made a decision recently to not be a journalist anymore. She said, I'm going to, be an activist. And of course, this activist journalist, you know, Mumia Abu-Jamal is my favorite activist journalist. But when you're an activist journalist, you're not platforming opinions that you feel like are harmful. Um, Right now, this is something I'm new, I'm trying with this show, you know, with this people call it a podcast, I call it a show. We talk about the guest and of course, the people who produce it and people who see it, people love to see drama and conflict, but I'm not going to have... White supremacists on my show, or I'm not gonna have people on this show that I feel like like I have respect for Joe Rogan, but there's people that he has on his show, Alex Jones, Milo, people like that. That even though I still respect what he does as a, I guess he's a journalist in that capacity, I could never do that. So even though what I'm doing right now is a journalist, this is my journalist hat I'm wearing. I consider myself an activist journalist. There's certain conversations I'm not gonna have, certain people that I'm not gonna invite to. To the conversation I feel like you feel the same way no I do feel the same way I just can't
0: capitulate to stupid mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. and I'm okay with people disagreeing you know with me like you mentioned the fact that I had Killer Mike on the podcast mm-hmm. I don't um, I don't agree with everything Killer Mike says mm-hmm. um, and you know I, I, I have often been you know curious about his his continued uh, uh, supporter of, of Bernie Sanders, not saying that mm-hmm. he isn't allowed to support who he wants to support, but I, I'm curious how the ideals kind of kind of mm-hmm. match up. And so with all that being said, but I have respect for, for Killer Mike because he's informed. Um, he has good ideas. He is, I think, a hell of a thinker, and I can appreciate the way his mind works, what I can't do, like you said, Richard Spencer, nah, you just giving a platform to somebody who needs your platform way more than you need theirs. Right. Like, they don't even have one. That's why they're trying to be on your shit, That's you right. know? And so, like, when people, when I get every now and again, and you get the same thing, too, is I'll get a an influx of candace owens supporters saying are you afraid to debate her and all this i'm like i ain't paid to debate candace owens candace owens is trying to be where i am not the other way around right right so right. i'm much bigger than her and i'm not trying to say that to sound like an asshole but the reality is like i don't punch down that's for what right. you know what i'm saying so
1: yeah people uh, get confused when i be on twitter they be like why are you debating them i'm like i'm not debating them no. this is not a debate no <laughs> one agreed to this there's no rules of engagement there's no outside party that we all agreed as a it, it, you know to, to uh, moderate none of that. Um, my hero academically, one of them is John Henry Clark, and he said, uh, "I'm trying to remember the exact quote now because I don't want to fuck it up." You know what <laughs> saying? Um, Should
0: we pull it up? He said,
1: "I debate my equals, all others I teach."
0: Mm. That's a that's that's what I'm that's talking about. Right, there. so
1: we can have spirited debate amongst your scholarly equals, right. people who have put in the work. Right. I'm sure there are conservatives I can't think of on the top of my head. I'm sure there's conservatives out there that I would have a mutual respect for that I could have a debate with and we could agree to disagree. It's not going to be some anonymous person on Twitter, though. No, like, that's not a debate. No,
0: it's not. In, in yeah, there are conservatives who I think... Um, you know at least bring a level of intelligent discourse to the conversation who mm-hmm. unfortunately in this era of of Trump have been muted i mean mm-hmm. like Essie cup i really respect her i think mm-hmm. um while again we don't agree on everything mm-hmm. but i respect that she comes from an informed place um and and that's the part that is kind of sad and disappointing to see is that the, there's this this willful Um, attraction to ignorance Mm -hmm. you know is that where people are proud of what they don't know knowing not understanding how stupid they sound yes and um, unless you come to the table with a certain amount of historical perspective it's hard to have tough conversations and that's what I think a lot of the conservatives don't understand is that Mm -hmm. you know we know more about their history than they know about ours right and because of that imbalance I'm not here to play you know, teach white people about Black history. I'm right. done with that game. Like right. you, you know where the books are, you know uh, where the information is. We all got Google. It's technology. This whole I didn't know
1: or help me understand. Nope, not my job. I'm in the same way. That's your job. <laughs> I'm in the same way. Like yeah, I'm, I told Jared the other day: expose, confront, and destroy. Mm-hmm. Like that's not. I'm not here to save a racist soul. Nope. What make we you have,
0: feel comfortable? Yeah, no. we have other work to do. No, and it's. it's I think it's always been such an unfair burden put on people of color is that we didn't create systematic racism. We didn't create institutional racism. We didn't create this general attack on uh, black bodies, but yet we're always put in charge of fixing the problem. Mm -hmm. And I find that to be sort of intellectually dishonest. We didn't create it. Mm -hmm. Why are we working so hard, killing ourselves to solve it? Not saying that we can't do work or shouldn't do work in our own community, but at some point in order for this conversation on race to actually advance white people have to be just as invested in filling those gaps as we are mm-hmm. and until that happens we just gonna be where we
1: are What right up um speaking of being comfortable um you're at atlantic now not at espn and um i heard you or read something where you said that they're okay with discomfort whereas sort of espn was not okay <laughs> with it i wanted to ask you um would a white journalist have faced the same backlash for some of the things that you said? But then, when I was researching for this interview, I saw plenty of examples of white journalists who said similar things that you <laughs> said and did not face the same backlash. Well, I
0: think the one of the major differences, I mean, other other than race, is mm-hmm. the fact of the platform too. Mm-hmm. Is yeah, you know, ESPN. Um, I don't blame them for the position that they have to take Mm -hmm. it is a product that was built for sports fans Mm -hmm. that's where you go to watch games that's where you go to learn about your favorite teams Mm -hmm. that's the function of it now when there's a messy collaboration between sports and social issues and politics it gets tricky for everybody to navigate and a company that was built on the idea of being everything to everybody it's even trickier for them Mm -hmm. as it is for disney which owns espn Mm -hmm. And so um, The Atlantic, the thought process, the critical thinking that happens there, it's a political magazine meant to cause political discomfort, right. meant to push ideas of critical thinking, meant to challenge the stat- status quo. It, that's what it's supposed to do. That's the function of its job. And so for me, that was uh, a much, um, uh, it was a it was a fit that made all the sense in the world because of where I was from a, a personal and professional standpoint is uh, I had a great time at ESPN. I was there 12 years mm-hmm. and it's the best job I've ever had. It's the longest job I've ever had. But we had reached a point in our relationship where as much as there was mutual respect, we didn't have any business being together. Mm-hmm. Right. It's right. like, I wanted to go my way. Right. I knew they needed to go. A it's different a conscious point. uncoupling. It was, that was exactly <laughs> the way that I would put it. And mm-hmm. i Respected the position that they were in and they respected the position that I felt I needed to be in it was entire Conversations taking place in this country that I felt like I needed to be a part of um, And needed to be doing more than what I was doing and I couldn't do that there Mm. and so It made all the sense in the world to leave.
1: I Know that Donald Trump is a white supremacist Convince someone that doesn't know that in their heart that Donald Trump is a white supremacist
0: so what I would say is um, they have got to do some reading and uh, you know a lot of the people who because I get it all the time you get it all the time is people saying well, well I don't I don't understand and what has he done and then they of course my favorite is when they point to some award the NAACP gave him years ago. Which right that's is, been debunked. Which is debunked yeah. a thousand times yeah. which is paid for so you have to come into the conversation one with an open mind, and two, willing to do the work to see it. And mm-hmm. it's not like it's that hard. You can go back to, you know, the the racial housing discrimination suits, uh, the Central Park Five, the Bertha conspiracy. We could just start there. Let's just leave the seventies mm-hmm. and the eighties out of it. Let's just start with the Bertha conspiracy, which was some bullshit. It's mm-hmm. like the the black president, the only black president that we have, he uh, furthered totally. Um, you know, built his political career That's right. on a absolute lie. Mm-hmm. Because he was wh- on Fox every week oh my God. during the Obama what presidency just about way to ingratiate yourself yeah. to the kind of base that he did than to try to delegitimize the first black president. And um it wasn't just him, it was Melania too. It was all so it's it's we can start there and move forward. No Mexicans are not all rapists and drug dealers, mm-hmm. all right. No African countries are not all shit- shithole countries mm-hmm. like the his language and 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 discussion of marginalized groups has been so reckless mm-hmm. I mean even in his rallies like and for people to try to have that you know um sort of separation by saying, "Oh, he just said that to get elected." Well, somebody voted for him based off that
1: right and, and then did you hear him when he got elected? And they started chanting, lock her up. He was like, we're not saying that no more. I was just saying that because it worked at the rallies. And
0: that has been his whole MO. He -hmm. will say whatever he needs to say to get you to believe in a way that is almost cultish or to get you to ignore the other things. Bottom line, every Trump supporter I've talked to, for the most part, that I've been able to have a relatively pleasant discussion with, At some point it gets to the racism Mm -hmm. as in it's something bigoted that they already believe that he connects with and that's why they like him. Right. And while maybe I wouldn't go as far as to say all Trump supporters are bigots, I wouldn't say that or are racist, but he holds some bigoted beliefs that you share. And you gotta own that Mm -hmm. be it about immigration like i'm so damn tired of these stories about the trump reporter the trump supporter that now regrets the decision after he showed them exactly who they are Mm -hmm. i mean you have people who uh this one story the la times just did this story in fact about this guy him and his wife have been raising their young child on different sides of the border, he voted for Donald Trump and was shocked when his wife got deported, who right. he knew was undocumented. Right. And that's because they all, a lot of them, I should say, have this mentality that they're all good at hurting people as long as it's not them. That's not how policy works. Mm-hmm. It doesn't say, hey, you, you're not going to be affected, but the rest of them are. He was yeah. coming for all of you. Yeah. And so um, I just find that they're of him even now to be – Especially ignorant. Mm-hmm. What do you
2: do? You think um, there's a difference between being racist and being a white supremacist? And what do you do? You think the differences are?
0: I mean, I think those are very closely aligned. I mean, with white supremacy, um, that is an expected level of superiority over other races. That means you just straight up think you're better than them. Be it intellectually, be it you know in whatever category, usually mm-hmm. intellectually or. Um, just from a a status and financial position, like you just think you're better and that you aren't better because of something you've earned. You are better because that is your inherent right to be better than them, because that's the way the hierarchy goes. Whereas, you know, racism is much more to me of a taught and learned experience. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of people who are racist simply because of the fact that they have not been exposed to other groups, other cultures. Um, yeah. But there's also people um, who are, you know, racist because they have this built-in resentment and animosity toward people they don't know and don't look like them. When you look at the migration patterns of the country right now, people are living more segregated existences. Oh, yeah. And that's
1: scary. Yes, it's um, fear. Yes, fear. Of the other. Um, In sociology, racism and white supremacy is one and the same. You know, the history of race racism was created to justify the Atlantic slave trade. You know, we, we weren't looking at people as different races based on skin color before then. So the entire idea of race based on skin color is to support white supremacy. Like that's the whole reason for it. And like anybody can be bigoted. We all, we all have bigotry in us. Yeah, we all have big, done-
0: big, Bigotry is different than racism yeah. and yeah. You know, even white supremacy. Like you said, we all can be
1: bigoted. Um, I was, as a fan of journalism, um, I've been so disappointed in, like, the White House press corps. And, uh, you know, uh, there was a Jewish guy uh, who I got into an argument with on Twitter the next day, Jewish journalist who was working for, you know, uh, this magazine. And he was a pro-Trump pro Jewish guy. And he wanted to give Trump a layup. He wanted Trump to stand up against anti-Semitism. Jewish graves are being desecrated. People. Po- uh, Uh, spray painting, swastikas and Jewish grave sites and all this. And he started to ask the question, and Donald Trump, sensing that he was going to be asked about white supremacy, said, you sit down, you be quiet, I already know what you're going to ask. That guy later tried to defend Donald Trump, and that's why me and him got into an argument on Twitter. But you know the way that Donald Trump talks to someone like an April Ryan, Mm -hmm. um, this thing's incensed me because I feel like the other journalists in the room are supposed to have her fucking back. And I feel like they're just waiting for their turn so they could get their soundbite for their network, even though Donald Trump will tell a straight-up lie like one, one press conference. And this is why he don't even do the press conference anymore, because he keeps get, getting caught lying. One guy from NBC was saying, well, here's a picture of your inauguration. Uh, and Here's a picture of Obama's. How could you say? And Donald Trump just straight up lied, and they went on to the next question. I say this to say, you've been crit- critical of the idea of when they go low we should go high. Now, Michelle Obama said that, and she's great, everybody loves Michelle Obama, and her book is great, but I feel like maybe she could get away with that, Hillary couldn't get away with that. You know, I feel like, I feel like the idea of they go low, we miss a lot of nuance in that.
0: Yeah. Um, Well, to address one part of what you said about the press corps, understand that the press corps, the the makeup of it has changed significantly Mm -hmm. since Trump has been in office. Um, the White House has a great degree of, of control of over who's in that press briefing. Right, right, right. No, you see and, Breitbart people in yeah, there and all exactly. types of Yeah, and they were never allowed in the they, They're up. not yeah, supposed to be. They're not supposed to be yeah. there. I mean, personally, I don't think so. I think they're they're just way too irresponsible yeah. as journalists. Like racist bloggers. Correct. So yeah. now you have a different makeup where you have less people in the room that mm-hmm. will challenge him. And as has been seen, is that they are quick to threaten to rip credentials from reporters who mm-hmm. dare to actually challenge the president on things lies that he said or mm-hmm. you know create any situation where he does not um you know come off looking good it's the right. reason why he only generally does interviews with fox it's the mm-hmm. reason why because right. he knows he's got a, a an open channel there he's got a warm receptive audience both from the anchors and also um from the base um and i couldn't agree with you more is that if, if i don't care what publication you resent you represent Realize that if they do that to one of you, they will do that to all of that's you. That's right. And so, uh, if you see April Ryan being treated that way, understand that it's only a matter of time, matter of time before that's you. Mm-hmm. And while you may think in some ways that you are ingratiating yourself to the president, if you're any kind of real journalist, understand that's not your friend. And I would say that if that was Obama was there or anybody right. else. And what tripped me out, um, I had the pleasure of going to the uh, White House twice when Obama was the president. And, um, it was a lot of media there. And what was so funny is that all the Fox News people that spent every day killing Obama and playing to every bit of racism they possibly could when it came to um, however they talked about him and talked about his policies, all in line in the receiving line. Right. All in line, mm-hmm. right? Trying to get that picture. Cloud Tracy. Cloud chasing big time, and the thing is, like, if you ask them all honestly, none of them would ever say they might say they disagree with his policy, whatever. But none of them would ever say he wasn't a decent human being. And part of my issue with what we're seeing now is that there is so much evidence to suggest that the person in the White House is not even a decent person. I mean, there's plenty of Republicans that we've had that I would disagree with them on policy, but you know what? I felt like they were actually decent. People, right? They their policy may have been misguided. We can argue over that. What I can't argue about is you stumbling, going out of your way to either not acknowledge or to in some way defend white supremacy. I mean, as Andrew Gillum told Ron DeSantis, I don't know if you're a racist, but the racists think you're racist, and right. that should tell you a lot, right? You can be judged
1: by the company right. that you keep. When David Duke and them and the Nazis are like, That's our guy, right? That yeah. should
0: that should say a lot, but. You know, I mean, I guess the sad part for me, um, seeing journalism, especially being under attack under this, you know, president, is one um, him routinely referring to journalists as enemies of the state, which I yeah. think does put their lives at risk. Absolutely, a hundred percent. That's yeah. one
1: of the first paths to fascism. Correct. Start
0: shutting down when you start, shutting, when down you the start free press. shutting down the media, and I mm-hmm. don't think the public understands how important a free press is to a functioning democracy. The other part of it is that because he is so bold and outrageous in both his lies and his behavior. The media has gotten very gun shy about how to call out that behavior. If the president lies, just say he lies. All this hand wringing, trying to call it inaccuracies and mistruths, and you know, trying to trying to um, soften the language mm-hmm. isn't helping. Mm-hmm. When journalists lose the ability to call a lie a lie, it is seriously undermining. Every bit of credibility that we have in this profession, mm. we have to be able to do that. Mm. Jamel,
2: listen, this is a little off topic, but I need <laughs> to ask this. Um, I've been missing out on fantasy football for Uh-oh. two years now, <laughs> and Kaepernick has been paid. So, I'm wondering, do we still need to boycott or can I watch this? No, season? you I mean, hey, cut I, the checks. I, I, <laughs>
0: listen, I'm missing out on money here. So <laughs> I'm missing out. Um, you know, I, I feel as if it's, it's probably safe to come back. I mean, I mean, yes. I think it just depends on what your end game was. Were you somebody who felt like you couldn't watch football the same um, if lo- as long as he wasn't playing um, or if you felt like the point had been made? I'll say this to the people who feel like Colin Kaepernick sold out. I think they're being short-sighted because they have to understand what the NFL typically does to people who challenge them at court. Um, Tom Brady, who is arguably the face of the league, he couldn't even challenge the NFL in court. He mm-hmm. had to sit down for four games. And the fact that they were happy to settle with Colin Kaepernick tells you everything about what they feared. And I get it. I know some people wanted Colin Kaepernick to just read him and provide all receipts. Right. But if he loses, then what? You know what mm-hmm. I'm saying? And um, I think he, uh, what he's done in being able to kind of beat the NFL at their own game has really spoken volumes. So – It was a labor issue, and to me, that labor issue has been settled, so therefore, so it shall be written, so it shall be done. You may (laughs) be able to go back and play fantasy football.
1: (laughs) Now, speaking of Tom Brady, am I correct to say that he went to the White House?
0: No. He did not go? He did not go, even though he hasn't been, he didn't go under Obama either.
1: He didn't go under Obama? No,
0: and um, I had a feeling he wouldn't be going under Trump, even though... He was one of the athletes, one of the first ones, mm-hmm. if not the first ones, to have a, a MAGA hat in his locker.
1: Yeah, that's that's what made me think he went because no, of the MAGA hat. He just
0: had the, and he had, he clearly was caught off guard when people started to ask him about that hat. Yeah, he
1: doesn't seem politically no, influenced.
0: Uh, or I would say he doesn't seem inclined to share his politics. And probably that's
1: probably more accurate.
0: Um, and that hat was gone. Uh, his wife, um, Giselle, um, she has been very vocal. About her, um, you know, rebuke of Trump. So I have a feeling that was another reason why you didn't see say I, about ne- the one I need else. to
1: educate myself on that. I asked because you, I was trying to do a segue. Okay. Because I wanted to ask about the Boston Red Sox. Players. Oh
0: yeah, yeah. That was not surprising. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was also disappointing. You know, I mean, I, I guess to fill everybody in, it's like the Red Sox, uh, as is customary. There's a, um, or I should say, as is customary for some teams, depending mm-hmm. on how those teams feel about Trump because Golden State ain't never getting that invite. <laughs> <laughs> right. right. Although right. it's like, never. Who cares if you were not right, right, going right. anyway? So whatever. But um, the Red Sox invited to the White House to celebrate winning the World Series. And every player of color did not go, mm-hmm. including their manager, uh, Alex Corr, who's Puerto Rican. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've seen how our government has decided to treat our fellow Americans, underlying fellow Americans.
1: Puerto Rico. That's one of my favorite places on the planet.
0: And the fact that there's, People in this country who actually do not understand—they're part mm-hmm. of America—but mm-hmm. that's beside the point. Um, so, because of the the ghastly and irresponsible um, treatment of Puerto Ricans, um, you know that's why Alex Cora didn't decided not to go. I just thought it was interesting because whenever, if anybody's noticed, whenever black players, people of color, choose not to go to the White House, they are you know, badgered by the media about their decision not to go. Mm-hmm. Why are you not going? Because you know, they're waiting for them to get involved in a political topic. And I wrote a piece for The Atlantic that flipped the question, because if you are going to make black players and people of color account for their reason not to go, why aren't you asking white people why you are going? Yeah. Especially when you see that you, all the players <laughs> that are of color are not going.
1: Mm-hmm. That's we're the right question. Your Where's your brotherhood? I do have one more question. Okay. You've been very vocal about the season finale of Game of Thrones. Oh, dude, don't get me started. We'll be getting <laughs> another 20 minutes. I <laughs> swear we'll am I I'm am someone, unpopular opinion here, I didn't have any issues with the season finale, or a lot of people were upset over the last season. Yeah. I had one issue with the last episode. Okay, which was? Which was, how is the dragon, Drogon, so cognizant and woke that he was like, you know what, this chair is fucking everything up. Like how all of a sudden the dragon <laughs> knew that I need to burn a chair?
0: Well, because Member Tyrion said dragons are smarter than you think. I'm okay. not saying that's the only reason, I'm just saying at least it's a small defense. <laughs> I, I feel
1: like what I was thinking, I was like, you know what, he's been through so much, he's seen the other two dragons killed, she was reckless with the other two dragons. That last scene when she was flying in, all the all the spears was flying at him, he was like, listen. She had her fucking mind, and that chair drove her goddamn crazy.
0: She needed to be killed. I'm going
1: to burn that chair.
0: (laughs) Like, is this the chair's fault? I mean, it was Mm -hmm. supposed to be symbolic of the fact that all this, all this destruction, all this loss of life has, mm-hmm. has happened because of this throne. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not gonna go as far as to say that the, the finale was trash, as mm-hmm. a lot of people are It doing. was trash. <laughs> I won't go that far. I binge-watched for it three there. weeks mm-hmm. to I won't catch go. up mm-hmm. for that. I do not go that far, because it was still a great series mm-hmm. and it's still one of the best television series of all time, that being said. Game of Thrones, to me, the popularity, and I say this as somebody who just started watching two and a half, three months ago, right? Oh, so you're new to same. it. So I'm new. Three I'm three so you watched, all, you watched
1: all eight seasons? All eight. All eight. Oh, that sounds like a, a mind fuck. Yeah,
0: but But it was great because mm-hmm. I didn't have that same level of expectation mm-hmm. because a lot of people have been waiting two years, they're just like, oh, mm-hmm. hell no, right? So I was largely okay with this season, but I thought in the last season, they it was a lot of letdown because or the i'm sorry the last episode the last two episodes it was a lot of letdown they
1: were working they went off off the book the book ended what uh season six
0: yep the book ended in season six so there was you know obviously some issues there and then i think the other part of it was like Tyrion, for example daenerys had said Miss a step today, you fry a fish tomorrow, right? right? Right. So yet, when he clearly betrays her, it's like, oh, he's a prisoner. He gets out of prison, and then he gets to make all the decisions? It was <laughs> yeah. like, how is this
1: even possible? It's like what we were talking about with cultural currency and, and Kanye earlier on your show right. about, hey, you know, he did have a bunch of cultural currency, but so did Varys.
0: Thank um, you. And Vera's got barbecued right on the spot. Yeah, no trial, no No nothing. No trial, nothing. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen,
1: (laughs) boys and girls, children of all ages, Jamel Hill in the place to be.